This is the Strength Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. Mr. Bain, here we are in a bunker. Yeah. Recording episode 26. Doomsday Preppers. Of the Strength Anger podcast. <laughs> recording from an undisclosed location. Somewhere in the USA Day, where we've been told to shelter in place. Definitely. We would never do anything the government told us to or Never not do anything the government told us to do, of course. Well, you know, technically it's a volunteer mandatory thing, right? Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. Except for businesses, which are told to... Uh, Voluntarily mandatory. Yeah, mandatorily shut down. Anyways, let's let's not get too much on the <laughs> the coronavirus uh, craziness, but uh, any feedback from the past few episodes, Mr. Bain? Actually, yeah, I had a couple people that reached out and just thanking us for continuing to put out episodes because it's, uh, you know, things and happenings are going on right now in the world and uh, just having something to tap back into, you know, our hobby and... Uh, the sport, I think it's been really helpful for people. I think from what the feedback I've gotten, they enjoy obviously the Powerlifting USA throwbacks and uh, all the different history pieces that you know you bring up, obviously, because you have such a, a deep history in the sport. That's a lot of positive uh, from that. So I think uh, kind of like I've been doing, actually, uh, in my free time, we'll get into that over what's going on a little bit more, but you know, I'll watch YouTube videos of some of my you know favorite soccer players from back in the day. Uh, you know, all of 20 years ago. And so I think there's kind of that history lesson. Uh, people are enjoying that is the, the feedback I'm getting. Well, we're going to be doing a lot of that today. Yes, sir. It's going to be an all history episode today. Um, I, I haven't gotten too much feedback myself, but did get some good uh, listens. And when I checked the analytics, yes, um, yeah, the Data. last the last three or four episodes getting pretty good listens. So people are listening uh, again, like you said, a lot of time on on our hands in general. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So other than that, Bane. What is going on? Uh, you know, there's the obvious. We'll leave it at that. Uh, work from home, uh, which is interesting. I've been working from home since. Is that what W H or W, w- M W F H? Do you know? For? Do you know letters yet? I mean, no. you, you'll never get that heavy. But I'm just asking. No. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to Jackie about that. She's an educator, but uh, yeah. So working from home. She's numbers though. Oh, that's true. That's true. Uh, that's what I mostly stick to as well. Is numbers one thirty five, two twenty five, three fifteen. <laughs> I said 165 because we use the big bar. Of course, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, remote selling is, I'm not going to lie, it's it's a different challenge. Like selling in general is a challenge uh, given just the current climate right now. Uh, but remote selling is even harder. And so it's been it's been unique. It's been fun. Uh, Close a couple big deals, actually. Uh, one that we will find we'll find out not tomorrow, but the day after tomorrow. We'll record on a Monday uh, how big it's going to be. But it's a... Uh, it's a significant piece of business, so that's uh, been kind of nice. Give myself a little breathing room, give you know the company a little bit of breathing room during this kind of crazy time. A uh, lot of home projects. I uh, fixed two toilets today. Uh, wow, one yeah. I did not realize was in any type of disrepair until I went in the kid's bathroom and discovered that, so that was fun. So your honeydew list is actually getting smaller for a change. It is significantly smaller. Uh, the only two big projects I have is I have – we had a uh, pipe burst last year. 
Uh, I remember you talking about that. Yeah, that was uh, interesting. So there was a big piece of uh, drywall that needs to be replaced, and so I uh, finished cutting that out and uh, going to go over to uh, Home Depot because it is still open. And yeah, I was about to say, uh, is Home Depot open? Yep. I guess it is. It is, it is. So get uh, get some drywall and, and put that in there, and we got the uh, spackling and all that to, to get it all together. And uh, then I got a couple of projects in the backyard once it warms up a little bit, which it's supposed to later on this week, and my honeydew list is done. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure more things will be added to it, but definitely, uh, especially as it gets warmer. But no, so it's been, uh, basically what's going on with me. Uh, Stone, what's going on with you? Well, uh, not a whole heck of a lot in the last few days. Yeah. Um, but even since our last episode, it seems like uh, things have rapidly changed. So mm-hmm. we went from having the meet about, uh, you know, a little over a week ago to. Yep. To altering the meet, to postponing the meet, to now the gym is just totally closed until the middle of April. Yeah, that's going to be, that's, I still am wrapping my head around all that, just how it's, how things have gone and escalated. And um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to looking back on this and kind of reviewing the whole timeline of uh, this COVID-19 situation and uh Remembering this is going to end up being just a hiccup on you know over the course of our life, but it's a big hiccup right now. Yeah, we hope. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard for me as somebody who is used to routine and mm-hmm. used to consistency. It's hard for me to have so much change in such a short <laughs> period of time. It's like yeah. just when I feel like I've got my hands around one change, the next one has come. Mm-hmm. So lots of free time. But um, wait, there's more. Yeah. <laughs> lots of free time, but uh, I am hopefully going to take some of this extra free time and use it usefully, coming in the gym a little bit mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe cleaning up some things, working on some projects that have been put to the back burner. Um, I'm going to go back in some of the past episodes of the Strength Anger podcast. And, you know, we've done some pretty good detailed notes for each episode. Yeah, we have. You know, really is the the blueprint, the outline for an article for mm-hmm. each uh, each episode. So I'm going to go back and perhaps listen to some of the the old episodes and then do a, a short blog write-up, you know, related on my thoughts on that nice. and, you know, going through some of those notes and timelines and, you know, dates and statistics that, especially some of those early episodes, I did some good statistical analyses yes. of some of the past meets. So More data, more science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Bane, what is great? I got two great things, and actually, I almost threw in a third. I'm going to save that for next week, but uh, I know you guys don't have Netflix. Uh, not currently. Currently. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I may give you my Netflix login so you can check this out. And for those listening, if you've not watched the miniseries Tiger King yet. What is it about? Tiger King is about this gentleman who is a, essentially a zookeeper, but he's a breeder of large cats, uh, lives in Oklahoma, and this the only word I can use for it is this saga that starts, uh, I want to say, 10, 12 years ago. Is this fictional or nonfiction? This is nonfiction. This is all true events. Okay. They're interviewing him. This, so this is a documentary type, it, style it is, thing. It, it is a documentary. He, ha- he has this very larger-than-life personality. Um, okay. And he, I can't remember what his, what his actual name is, but he goes by the name Joe Exotic. And this guy is just, he is so far out there. And th- so just to give you a quick synopsis of what this seven-part miniseries entails, I mean, it's, a, it's seven hours of your life, but well worth it. It is such a high level of white trash that you, you just cannot <laughs> comprehend. Eric, I'm, I'm Where not is even, he from? He's from Oklahoma. 
Okay. Well, yeah. Well. There are big cats. There are uh, people switching teams when it comes to their sexuality. There are, there's a presidential run. There's a governor run. There's a plot for murder, uh, like a murder for hire plot. I mean, is this like a is this like a Joe Dirt style? Uh, this is. It feels like it. Yes. Okay. Uh, same haircut too. And of course, <laughs> dude, this is just. It's so. This is one of those definitely you cannot make this crap up. Okay. It's unreal. And the thing I've told people, I, I post this on Facebook too, you need to watch it sober and you need to watch it alert because there's so many layers to all this. And the way the characters, and I call them characters because that's what it feels like, the way these individuals are intertwined in different ways because it is this, again, very kind of like us, a very niche community of big cat breeders and exotic pet breeders. And Is it even legal? I guess maybe Oklahoma is a little bit more lax on some of their laws. Yes-ish. So. Okay. Yes-ish. <laughs> uh, Spoiler alert. Yeah, but I'm, I'm telling you, man, get watch the first episode. You you will be left with your head scratching all the way till the end. Like, what in the fuck is this guy's deal? And well, so, again, right. you've, got, you've got just a ton of different things in there, and, and I'm telling you, it's worth the watch. Uh, so Tiger King on Netflix, Let It Change Your Life, and uh, Mac and Cheese. I have not eaten Mac and Cheese for a couple of years. And over the last couple of months or so, and especially uh, the last few days being at home, uh, we've just eaten a lot of mac and cheese. And Are you I, talking like craft box mac and cheese or like homemade mac and cheese? Uh, we're actually going with the high-end box mac and cheese. So it's got like the cheese packets, not the powder cheese. Okay. And uh, it's, man, shells and cheese. Fire. Yeah, I'm not amazing. a big mac and cheese fan, I'll have to admit. It's okay. Um Especially box mac and cheese that like my kids would eat. Now, if it's a homemade mac and cheese, okay. like uh, one of our old members, Calvin Seath, makes a pretty good mac and cheese. Um, my uh, brother-in-law makes a really good homemade mac and cheese. So those I'll go for. But uh, your, your box mac and cheese, I guess I'd have to be convinced. So I, I get the artisan. It's actually the, the thing that says on it, uh, mac and cheese for Walmart. And then I will add uh, lobster into it. So it's my own lobster mac and cheese. And it is, oh, wow, so good, so delicious. So, Stone, what is great? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure if this is great or not, but I have a backlog of video games that uh, I think I got maybe even last year for Christmas. Not even 20, you know, 19, but back in 2018 that, oh, wow. that I haven't even touched. Um, I've been so busy in the last year mm-hmm. with the, the new gym and everything. So I think I'm finally going to get to catch up on some games that I haven't played. Nice. Which is something my son and I like to do together. So it's kind of a, a cool pastime he and I share. Now you guys are an, a Nintendo family, correct? Yeah. We have we each have a 3DS. Um, I have also an old Super Nintendo, Nintendo 64. Yes. Somewhere, I don't even know where, we have a Wii somewhere. I guess with mm-hmm. all this you know, time we've got on our hands and being quarantined, Perhaps it's time to bust out our Wii. I'm sure my son would love that. So N64, great system, by the way. Phenomenal system. The best. Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't translate well onto modern TVs. That's, that's one of the only problems with playing true. it. Very it true. Very true. It just, you almost need to go find an old tube TV. because Not that the graphics were great to begin with, but they're particularly you in know, their, blocky. In their time, they were. Right. No, I'm, yeah, definitely. But they're particularly blocky on modern TVs, and then the frame rate is not ideal either. Yeah. Not that I'm, again, not that it's going to be a, a super great frame rate, but uh, I do have uh, an old copy of the old 007 GoldenEye yes. game. Um, I've T- got 
Super Smash Brothers. Super Smash Brothers. Yes. It's funny because Super Smash Brothers has become such an iconic game. I remember buying it on a whim. Mm-hmm. I think maybe even used. And I was like, ah, you know, I like games with Mario in it. So I bought it, not realizing what it was. Yep. And it, it, that, that first Super Smash Brothers on Nintendo 64 really didn't take off the way that subsequent releases did. Really? Yeah, not, not nearly as much. I mean, it was popular, but nothing like the GameCube. I mean, the GameCube... Yeah that, yeah, that one was That's like, the one that's like still the cult underground classic. So, no, it wasn't nearly... It didn't fact, take off. I was always the N64 one. That was my, that was my jam, man. Yeah, no, I, I, yep. So, got some of those old games. Maybe Love trying it. to bust those out. We, uh, the boys and I started to get... Because I, we have a, a PS4 and we, we do have a few games for it. Not a ton, just because it's hit and miss whenever we decide to play. We just kind of go in spurts. Sure. Um, but we have the first Star Wars Battlefront. Okay. And when we had all this time... Uh, you know, last week working from home, I tried to make it a point not to just kill time while I was hanging out all day. Uh, and so Saturday, I woke up with the boys, told them, "Say, hey, when I get back from the gym, uh, we're gonna we're gonna start playing." And we actually played until like two in the morning. Wow! And then got up at seven on Sunday and continued. We actually beat the game all in that in the last weekend. Uh, so now we're looking at some other ones like we may end up getting on the PS Market or whatever. Because uh, we really enjoyed doing that as the, the three of us, so it was really fun. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a better way to spend my free time versus scrolling social media. Oh my god! And seeing more about how the world's going to soon end, or you know, any number of things that I don't really want to read about right now. Yeah, you know, I uh, I have enjoyed though on uh, I think it's yeah it's Instagram on stories. You know, if you you know reply with the fire emoji to uh, people, they'll you know go through and they'll find different. Uh, you know, of your own posts or whatever to uh, that they like and explain why they like it. And I kind of enjoy that. It's that nice interaction and people aren't necessarily thinking and talking about, uh, you know, the end of the world as we know it. Yep. So let's move on, Bane, to our Pulsa throwback. Throwback, throwback, throwback. The Powerlifting USA archive. We've got an issue from March of 2012. March 2012. We didn't do this the last, last episode. What were you doing in March 2012? Hmm... That's a good question. I'm trying to think. I would have been working at RightFit mm-hmm. in Willowbrook. Was Jacob uh, born yet? Jacob was not quite born yet in okay. March. He would have been born in May of okay. 2012. Oh, gotcha. So, so okay. he was it, pregnant. It was, uh, it was getting close at that point. So, yeah, I would have been right kind of in the middle of my RightFit run. Um, it would have been a couple years later that we decided to start 2XL. Mm-hmm. So still would have been just having Team Stone at the gym there, training, competing, um, yeah, Jackie would have been very pregnant in March of 2012. Nice, nice. How about yourself? Uh, March 2012, I would have been working at Atomic Transport. I was a director of training and a carrier sales manager, a working manager. Uh, I'm thinking about it. It was either March or May of 2012. I had the largest largest month in Atomic's history at that time where my my gross profit on the loads that I booked was, uh, was $230,000, uh, just me. Wow. Yeah, it was either March or May. I can't remember. Uh, kids were all born. Ella would have just turned two, and Austin would have been uh, getting ready to turn nine later in the year. So he was, it would have been eight. So crazy. Okay. Yeah. So, and actually, uh, I did look up. Uh, I knew this was kind of near the end of Powerlifting USA's run. Mm-hmm. So May 2012, and the Powerlifting USA website is still still on, mm-hmm. still up as to date. Um, that would have been the last issue of Powerlifting USA. You know, I think in over like 30-year run wow. of so Powerlifting USA. So this is so one. we lost of, Powerlifting USA, but we gained Jacob Stone. 
Yeah, there you go. There we go. I love that. It's awesome. Yeah, it. Uh, <laughs> it's too bad. I think maybe if Powerlifting USA would have been able to, you know, survive another year or two, they might have been able to stick around with just the boom yeah. of powerlifting that we're seeing now. Gosh, I don't know. Maybe not. Right. Yeah, it's the couple-year bridge is all they would have needed. Yeah, because I I feel like, and I could be wrong, because maybe I'm just an old-school guy that likes a an actual physical magazine um, as opposed to the online blogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like with the boom of powerlifting, at least they could have had you know, uh, you know, a, a base a base of people that would want to buy it, just because it would be such a niche kind of magazine. Yeah, um, it, it just the whole newspaper magazine, you know, print business has changed so much in the last <laughs> that it has ten plus years. You know, I don't know. Maybe they still wouldn't have survived, even if they would have been able to make it to the boom, current boom of powerlifting. Uh, but not till now. I would say probably like 2018 probably would have been it for them. Uh, I mean, ESPN the magazine stopped printing uh, late last year. So, but there's still some. I mean, I think Sports Illustrated still yeah, still in Sports business. Illustrated does, yeah, yeah. So. And, and who knows? Maybe all of them are doing poorly that are still around, and it's just kind of yeah. hanging on by a thread. Well, so, Sports, Sports Illustrated has a swimsuit issue, so that that helps keep them going. Yeah, so. maybe that's all they need for the whole year. Yeah. Anyway, so on the cover of this issue is, uh, I thought this was funny. It says in the inside uh, cover, uh, this is Dennis Tinajero. I'm pretty sure it's Daniel Tinajero yeah. of WPO fame. It's hard because the picture is of him benching. What do you think, Bane? Do you think that is our man Daniel Tinajero? I would be willing to put money yeah, on that. I'm, is Danny. I'm 90% sure of that, but it's kind of funny that inside the Inside the issue, they did call him you Dennis. Know what? We're gonna have to tag him on the uh, on the when we post it up online and see if that is indeed him. Yeah, Let him confirm for us. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's him though. Yeah, uh, there's also Liz Friel, mm-hmm. um, and this is from the USPA LA Fit Expo, probably one of the first bigger you know high profile meets that the USPA ran. Um, would have evolved into the US Open because that's where they used to do it. I was at the LA Fit Expo. Okay, yeah, and now the U.S. Open has nothing to do with the USPA. Yep. That's a whole other... Uh, that could be a whole episode by itself. Yeah, I don't have a lot of uh, personal feedback on that, but it would be an interesting thing to look into. Oh, I could point you to a couple of podcasts that has it. Okay. Uh, but yeah, this was probably one of the first kind of big USPA meets for mm-hmm. if you haven't listened to one of our episodes in the archive on the Alphabet Soup of Federations. <laughs> the USPA has not been around that long. In fact, this might have been one of their first few years... Um, they evolved from the USPF, which mm-hmm. actually kind of goes right into what we're going to talk about today yeah. with uh, you know, the USPF and the IPF and the changes that came from there. But yeah. the USPA evolved out of the USPF. Steve Dennison was their, at that time, their biggest prolific meat director with the USPF, and he transitioned and formed his own organization, the USPA. Um, Daniel, I'm pretty sure, Tina Harrow mm-hmm. did, and this was in single-ply gear, by the way, and walked out. So this was 717 squat, 617 bench, and a 678 deadlift, a 2012 total at 198. It's just mind-blowing. Liz Friel. And I, I'm not familiar with her, but this is some impressive lifting. She did 529, 375, 551 for a 1455 total at 165 as was a it? female in single ply. In single ply, okay. Yeah. Wow. So those are good numbers. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It, it wasn't that big of a meet. If you look at the results in there, there wasn't, like, as far as numbers, numbers of lifters, and maybe that was the design, was just, mm-hmm. a, you know, kind of a, at the LA Fit Expo, it was just kind of a, a highlight meet, kind of like we've talked about with the WPO being, you know, 
bigger competition and lower numbers as far as the number of participants. Right. So we had a uh, an article by Doug Daniels, who's not a guy we've talked about um, in our Pulsa throwback, but he probably has had an article in just about every Powerlifting USA that we have gone through. Hmm. Um, it, you know, he had some very common sense style articles, and I'm not familiar with Doug. If anybody knows who Doug Daniels was or is, at least from when I started reading Powerlifting USA's in the early to mid-2000s, I remember his articles. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were always very, you know, it was labeled starting out. Um, so it was, you know, geared towards beginners. Mm-hmm. And he always had very just, you know, solid, common sense articles. Mm-hmm. And what this one talked about was, you know, kind of how to handle your training leading into a meet. Mm-hmm. And he recommended taking your openers on the deadlift about 10 to 14 days out, your squat about five to six days out, and your bench about three to four days out. And then just resting or only doing abs and stretching, you know, leading into the meet itself, which is pretty similar to the recommendation that I usually make. I yeah. usually have my individuals take their their squat openers about like that, two weeks to ten days out. Mm-hmm. Um, their squat openers more like seven days out, mm-hmm. sometimes even a little bit longer, and usually do bench and squat together. But you could certainly take your bench openers, you know, four, five, six days out, and still have enough, uh, you know, enough juice in the tank to to rest. But you know, that, that kind of goes against what others suggest, which is, you know, lift all the way up right up until your meet, the, <laughs> high, the high frequency, high volume types. And I, I see, you know, some pretty successful uh, USAPL IPF lifters, like the one you followed on Instagram, Bubbly Power Lifter. I can't remember her name. Oh, Bodica, yeah. Yeah, and she came in, like I think, like the day before she lifted. Correct. And did, did, a, full... did a full squat bench deadlift. Not heavy, but I would never even think of doing that. Um I know that the I've talked to Brian Carroll, and he said some of the Ukrainian Russian lifters, after weighing in and mm-hmm. rehydrating, you know, getting glycogen back in their system, they will go to the warm room and do like a, a high rep style workout, hmm. you know, uh, just start basically at a pump. And the idea is, well, if if you've cut weight mm-hmm. and you've depleted your glycogen stores and you've been dehydrated, well, how are you going to get that glycogen back into your muscles without mm. working the muscles? Interesting. So. I have done that a couple times when I've, uh, you know, done the reconstitution plan. Um, I think it probably helped a little bit. It's hard to really say. Um, but for gear, you know, if you cut that weight and then you want to get it back on, you, it is important to not just put weight back on but to fill in the muscles because if you just put weight on and your belly gets big, right. well, that doesn't necessarily make your squat suit or your bench shirt tighter. Right, right. Which is why I, I prefer not to cut weight anymore if I, yeah. if I don't have to. Just don't even do it. That's right. that's my my philosophy anymore. Uh, it was interesting because uh, Eric Moroser does a very similar article. I'm guessing they probably you know he probably pulled from this. Uh, gosh, it was probably two years ago he did you know basically what now that it's meat week what do you do? Sure. Um, he had, he had a pretty catchy title for it, but uh, yeah, I mean same thing is doing what? How did you how did you peak for it? And then you know the he and he goes into like those like day to day like okay hey you're gonna lift on Saturday so. Monday, what are you doing? Tuesday, what are you doing? You know, you're listening to, you know, low-key music. You're watching cartoons, nothing even to get you all fired up. Like, just how are you How are you keeping everything in the tank so that on meet day, everything, you know, kind of comes out for you? So. Yeah, I think Marosha's article did focus a little bit more, uh, and I've read that article. Mm-hmm. It focused a little bit more on preventing the release of adrenaline leading mm-hmm. to the meet and trying to keep your body calm and saving that, you know, burst of excitement um yeah he's he's really really big on that well because if you're 
anxious the entire week of the meet, um, that's certainly not going to be optimal if you're in a stress situation the four or five days just from mental stress, I don't even think is optimal. And I don't think Daniel's talked as much about that. He was talking more about training. Yeah. And it was always a short article. It was about a page long, mm-hmm. but very common sense advice that Daniel's always had in his weekly starting out article. Gotcha. We had a pretty interesting interview. And again, this is late in Powerlifting USA's life. I had canceled my subscription by this point. I don't. I can't remember exactly why. Maybe I just it just wasn't interesting to me anymore. It the last year or two, it really got to be very advertiser heavy, and it was like, eh, I'm just not sure I'm getting anything out of this. You know, Powerlifting Watch was starting to get big, and that was kind of the the online blog. Um, but this was a pretty interesting interview with Titan uh, Support Systems, not Titan the rogue equipment knockoff manufacturer. Yeah, which, oh, my God. This is an entirely different. Trash. uh, This is Titan Support System, which is, you know, they make squat suits and bench shirts like Enzer Mm -hmm. that we're going to talk about today. Again, ironically, but Pete Alanis, I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name correctly, but he talks about how he started Titan. Um, He first saw a marathon squat suit all the way back in 1978. So we talk about... Raw lifting, being the true lifting. I mean, even Pete Alan, I mean, granted, he's a gear manufacturer, so I guess a little bit biased, but he talks about, you know, seeing his first squat suit back in 1978, and he actually, there's a, there's a picture in here I'll, I'll show you maybe later, Bane. Mm-hmm. I don't want to thumb through the whole uh, magazine, but there's a couple of pictures of people with blown squat suits, mm-hmm. um, and that was pretty common back in those days because no one had really, you know, they were just buying kind of stock stretchy polyester right and pete talked about that he was one of the first manufacturers to go and not only look for something different Mm -hmm. as far as the material but then actually talk to you know the textile manufacturers and say this is what i'm looking for and can you make something different Mm -hmm. and getting something you know a you know they talk about when he came out with his venture in the early 2000s it was the nxg material and it was definitively a different type of material mm-hmm. than was at that time used by Inzer, by Franz, and by Crane, which was that kind of stretchier poly material. Interesting. So he actually went to the textile manufacturer and said, this is the application, this is what, you know, this is the, the stretch, this is the rebound, this is what I needed to do. Yes. How, how do your engineers make this happen? Yeah, no doubt. Interesting. Um, and he said his mother was the first one that uh, she was, I guess, a seamstress, and she saw these squat suits getting blown, and she probably said, hey, I could fix that for you, and then said, hey, I think I could make something better than that. Yeah. And that's kind of how Titan Support System started was his mom. Mom, the squat suit. We need it. <laughs> yeah. Mom, can you fix my squat suit? It blew again. Well, that's bullshit. I'm going to make my own squat suit. P- Peter, what are you doing? <laughs> and, you know, it's ironic because both <laughs> he and John Enzer, the two biggest gear manufacturers, I would say for the most part. I mean, metal has been big Mm -hmm. um, from Finland, but I'd say at least U.S.-wise, you know, Ernie Franz was big. I don't think he was ever quite as big as Titan and Ninzer, simply because they both were IPF approved. Um, Well, in that case. (laughs) Yeah, well, Ernie never had a, well, after what we're going to talk about later. We're all going to know why Ernie was not IPF approved. He never had an an interest in being IPF approved. No. no. But, uh, you know, Titan, he... uh, you know, he talked about how when they really wanted to expand, he would, you know, kind of pay their way to go to some of these international meets mm-hmm. and start uh, the process of getting Titan out there internationally because for a while it was really just Enzer, yeah. um, who we're going to talk about next week. Oh, well, we're going to talk about it a little bit today, too. 
We will a little bit, yeah. Not as much, but a little bit. Um, there was a, quote, deadlift training article by Louis Simmons. Um, Louis Simmons from Westside. There's really nothing interesting in this article. It's, it's pretty <laughs> much the same stuff. Uh, I mean, it, it's, good. it's always good to read his articles just to see what he has to say about things. He always has a commonality of, you know, using uh, empirical examples of people he's trained, yes. which I think is good. And I'm not going to say it's bad, but, you know, I always use the the analogy that, well, you can't use one example to say that's what it is or to, to describe a trend. Yeah, you, you – yeah, 100%. Because if you're talking about, you know, a training methodology, not saying that – I mean, obviously a lot of his stuff does work. But saying, hey, you know, because Eric Stone, he did – Rack pulls from pin two, and you know he did a deadlifting, you know eight thirty two at USA Senior Nationals in two thousand five. That means it's going to work for Robert Bain. Yeah, no, it, it's not. And that is about how Louis sounds in some of these articles. Um, but what I wanted to talk about was this was the original advertising method for Westside Barbell. Yeah. If there had not been Powerlifting USA, and if Louis Simmons had not written a weekly article, I mean, and there's an there is a Westside article. In every Powerlifting USA, we've gone through. So, so is Powerlifting USA weekly or monthly? I'm sorry, monthly. Okay. Not, not, okay. not weekly. I'm sorry, sorry, did, sorry. Just want to make sure. Oh, was, no, no. I'm sorry. I was following you. He wrote it because I, I, I wrote weekly. Yeah. Sorry, monthly. He wrote a monthly article for Powerlifting USA for every issue that I can ever remember picking up. So mm. as long as I had Powerlifting USA from you know the early 2000s, Louis every month had an article. And I'm sure he probably, I'm just guessing, he probably didn't get paid anything for that. But he probably just used it as his marketing method of getting the West Side Barbell method out there. Yeah, because I think it was actually mentioned in West Side vs. the World that that's you know how he sold a lot of his tapes was through you know the, the it, it might have been marketing. Yeah, it might have been a trade thing where he said, okay, I'll I'll write a, a monthly article and then can I have X, free free ad space, free ad space, or maybe discounted ad space. I yeah. mean, I think in the early days, probably West Side was mostly funded by those VHS tapes. Oh yeah. And you know, let's see some of those. If you talk, well, Howard Penrose has some of those. If you'd like I to see them, I do want to see them. Yeah, they're, 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 he player. probably has. Well, he probably has the DVD versions, but it's the same same stuff, same, same content. Thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he talks about it in West Side vs. the World. He did not charge a membership fee once he decided to make it powerlifting only. So it's like, how the hell is Louis making money? Um, you know, there's big money in mm-hmm. in selling tapes. I mean, you sell, you make one tape, you manufacture it, you sell it for twenty, thirty bucks. That was probably a big part of his business model. Oh, and it's like how you would sell a program on Instagram for nineteen ninety nine that you may or may not have stolen from somebody. <laughs> That's even less because you don't. Need, you just got ones and zeros there. Not gonna, not gonna name any names on that one. But there was a re uh, a re write up on the nineteen eighty two Hawaii record breakers, and for those of you that are not familiar, That's the meat. The Hawaii record breakers was essentially like the WPO. Of its time. He had some big sponsorship, and this was run by Gus, Gus Rethwich, who later would go on to start Wobble. And mm-hmm. actually, in one of the articles that we reference in our podcast today, um, Gus is quoted because at the time he was you know, a new member of the APF. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this time, he was running at USPF. And this was a big time meet. I mean, he had Budweiser as a sponsor. Mm-hmm. There was some TV, TV coverage of some type. I mean, there were some big, big name lifters. Um, Eric Marosher released a, a DVD, uh, maybe even Blu-ray of one of the years of the Hawaii Record Breakers. I don't think it was 1982 because no. it was one that Ernie Franz actually lifted in. Um, 
But uh, you know, it was a big time meet for many, many years. Um, yeah, it's, it, I, I remember. So this is way before I knew anything about powerlifting, strength, and like that. I remember my dad telling me about seeing a powerlifting meet when he and I we were staying up late one night. If you listen to our our first episode, we talk about our origin stories. And one of my first introductions to strength was watching World's Strongest Man on ESPN2 at like 2 o'clock in the morning with my dad. And he mentioned seeing a powerlifting meet when I was probably just a few months old. Now looking back, I know my dad was watching Record Breakers. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got in this meet, you've got Fred Hatfield, um, you've got Bill Kazmaier, you've got Gus Rethwich himself. I, I think I, Kaz was the plug that got my dad talking about it. Yeah, and, and Kaz does 903, 518, 782 at super heavyweight at 2210 total, which in today's terms maybe isn't huge, but you have to remember Kaz wasn't an exclusive power lifter. No, he's and, a pro wrestler. He's a strong man. I mean, right. he's, he's one of the greatest athletes of all time. And, you know, it's kind of like when people break that four-minute mile. Like, all yep. of a sudden, the mm-hmm. once the bar has been raised, everyone raises their game. And this was probably in, in very early gear. Um, it was not raw, but it wasn't like the gear, even the single-ply gear of today. It's like a really tight singlet, basically. So we've got the all-time men's top 123 totals and women's 132 totals. Skinny boys and girls. And this is a guy who is pretty well-known um, in the lightweight is Richard Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. And this was done at an APF meet in Baton Rouge um, in 2004. So pretty recently, uh, at least relative to this. I mean, eight years prior, but he totaled 1455 at 123 Jeez. via uh, 265 kilo squat, 135 kilo bench, 265 kilo deadlift. Um, this was a, you talked about times body weight. This is an 11.79 times body weight total for Richard. Wow. Um, Lamar Gant, a guy who is pretty well known for his deadlift. Superior deadlift. And he totaled, he's number three on this list, and this is all the way back from 82. So you can see there's not always been a huge number of 123 lifters. Lamar Gant, you know, even when this came out 30 years later, you know, with a 1383 total, still number three. Wow. On the women's side, you have someone we've, again, talked about quite a bit. Um, Margaret Kirkland, Mm. number one in the 123-pound weight division. This was in the APF WPC. She has a 1190-pound total, which is a 9.94 times body weight total. Wow. Number two is someone we've talked about quite a bit as well, Amy Weisberger yep. with an 1180 total, just just behind. Who we saw at uh, the WPO. We did. And let's go to the top 100 list. Um, and this is just the, the year top 100 list. This would have been from October 2010 through October 2011. Okay. Mark Tejero, who's a guy who lifted the WPO in yeah, October. The Super Finals, yeah. The Super Finals. I don't think he was at the he uh, was semifinals. Not. He was not. And he told, or he did a 688 squat at 148. You have Kay Unton, a guy who I don't know, but a 529 bench. You've got Eric Telmet, um, who's a pretty well-known guy. Uh, I believe he was the one who started the Raw Unity meet, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he did a 610 deadlift. And then you've got Mark Tejero again with a 1642 total. And I remember seeing Telmet at a... I think that seniors that we had talked about in 05, he had like the tightest canvas squat suit I'd ever seen on anybody. I mean, hmm. the one you saw me in on Sunday, this 
was nothing compared to Talmud's you, you were, super you were tight, squeezed in there. super tight uh, squat suit that he had on. Interesting. So yeah, that's uh, that's our Pulsa throwback, Bane. Solid one. That's uh, that's good. And uh, yeah, definitely tag uh, tag Tina Harrow in there and just make sure that it's. I'm, I'm, yeah, it says right in the thing here. Best lifters, Dennis, Dennis Tina Harrow. Cheapers. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Daniel Tina Harrow, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Maybe yeah. there's maybe he's got a brother. Maybe. Maybe Unlike, it's uncle or dad. Who knows? Unlikely. Yeah. So let's go on to the topic at hand for the day. We've we've bullshitted enough, Bane. Um, let's go on to the Ernie Franz versus USPF and IPF lawsuit. Oh my gosh! This. So you sent me the reading material. Yeah. On this, most of the time, Bane and I, I do some research and I write up some notes. Bane has a look at it, and we just kind of freestyle. Yeah. This one is so in depth that I really wanted Bane to read some of this stuff that. I had, was reading because it's pretty in depth. It, it, oh my gosh! Like one, the as you get into some of the stuff, like the actual legal documents, the court decisions and court opinions, like there's just a lot there. Yeah, you almost need a lawyer. We, maybe we could at some point between the two lawsuits we're going to go through these next two weeks, we could have our guy from CrossFit to find Patrick Callahan yeah. as a lawyer. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Come on and kind of maybe give some insight on some of these legal proceedings because it it starts to get in a legalese and it starts just make my head hurt and I, I i did cheat a little bit i actually sent this one to a lawyer friend of mine he's okay. also a logistics guy and he, he even said he's like dude this is like well wait till i send you the ones for next week yeah it, it reminded the, him of bill clinton's testimony he's like well it depends what your definition of is is that's what it felt like to him i'm telling you the one next week that i've already started to do some research oh on Bane, it just blows this out of the water all oh, but, for this silly little hobby <laughs> But let's let's stay focused. Let's dive in. Let's stay focused. <laughs> so there's a couple sources here, and the first one is my 2004 interview yeah. with Maris Sternberg, and this was basically at the time I'd started my website, ChicagoParlifting.com, and it was intended and still is meant to be a resource. So someone's looking up on the web, how do I get into powerlifting in Chicago? Mm-hmm. It's meant to just be just kind of a resource to how to find a gym, how to find a team, meets in Chicago, and then some pertinent information. And even back then, I had an interest in kind of looking at the history of the sport. Mm-hmm. This was probably the best interview I did. The Ernie Franz one is okay. He just, you know, you almost have to get him talking, not writing. Because what I did was I, I gave them the questions, and they wrote me back responses. Okay. And Maris wrote me pages and pages, handwritten, which I then transcribed. Oh, wow. Um, and this, what we're going to talk about this and next week, was the pieces of it that was the most interesting um, and we also are going to reference the article, and I want to give proper credit to Thomas M. Hunt and Jan Todd mm-hmm. from the University of Texas at Austin. Who cite um, your article in this. They do. Ironically, they cite both of my articles. Yep. Um, one, my interview with Maris, and also I had an interview with Ernie, mm-hmm. which they reference. Um, and they've got some. They've got a, this, I guess, a column, or I don't know, something if they've professionally published this called Iron Game History. Um, and this article is called Powerlifting's Watershed, Franz versus United States Powerlifting Federation, the legal case that changed the nature of the sport. And they have a long discussion. I mean, their article is I mean, if I, 20 I, pages long. Yeah, I got to tell you, like, if, you're, if you have like 30, 40 minutes, sit down and read this whole thing because there is, there is a ton of info, <clears throat> very similar to, you know, I was talking about Tiger King earlier. There's a lot of layers to all this. Uh, it is not just, hey, do, are we squatting deep enough? Are we, you know, 
Are we locking our deadlifts? There is way more to this discussion than just the basics of powerlifting. And I will give uh, Hunt and Todd some pretty good credit for a ton of research they did. I mean, they were yeah. around back at this point, especially Jan Todd, who the, the article we're going to talk about next week, she's intricately involved in. Um, and they may have some other articles as well. I would like to look and see what else they have. These are the I only... think this is what they publish out of, because they have the museum down in Austin. Okay. At UT. Well, obviously, um, Jan is the only one there now, but uh, I think this is actually like directly from that. Yeah, it could be. I mean, they've got some great research. Um, what we'll talk about is that I uh, disagree with their conclusions very strongly. Mm-hmm. However, um, you can't argue with the history and the research that they did far above what we have done here. And... and but we, we're going to reference it. Um, I also have, I found, the minutes of the IPF Congress from 2001. Oh, my God. And really, is... we're really only going to take one little snippet from there, but this is from directly from the IPF website. See, see, I didn't realize that it was just the snippet. I read the whole damn thing. Yeah, I mean, they, they have one of these for every year, which yeah. is pretty interesting. And I, I thumbed through the rest of it, and there's some interesting stuff if you just want to look at yep. you know, a, a snippet in time of the, the IPF. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this, this, we just have one snippet that I really take from there. And so, and also, we also have the actual legal, you know, document. Yeah. Franz versus U.S. Powerlifting Federation. And notice it's just Franz versus USPF. What we're really going to be talking about is Franz versus IPF. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very, that part of it is very simple. The USPF is where it gets a little bit trickier, but the IPF part of it is very easy. Oh, yeah. It's pretty cut and dry. So let, let's give some background. How did we get to Ernie Franz? And it was a combination of Ernie Franz, the American Powerlifting Federation, Franz Health Studio, his gym, Maris Sternberg, and her teammate, Felicia Johnson. Mm-hmm. How did they all come to sue the USPF and IPF? So, so if we go all the way back, and this is just really a quick foundation for this because this is really good. There was a time when there was only one federation here in the U.S., as crazy as that is, at least one that really anybody recognized. Yeah, well, there was there was AAU because all mm-hmm. sports were basically out of the Amateur Athletic Union, and then there was a legal case which separated the AAU from the Olympic type sports. Yep. Um, it was an antitrust kind of thing. Ironically, that's what we're going to be talking about today as well. Mm-hmm. And out of that, I don't know if it was a lawsuit or legal proceeding. That's maybe something to look at in a future episode. The USPF was born, mm-hmm. and then out of the USPF formed the IPF. So the United States Powerlifting Federation was the first. Powerlifting started basically in the United States. I mean, there may have been some other forms of it, and especially the UK, it was big. But basically, powerlifting started in the United States. As the odd lifts. And the USPF started the IPF. Mm -hmm. So to give some background, Ernie Franz at this time was a meet director Mm -hmm. for the USPF. And we're going to go back to 1981. Before even I was born. Yeah, before I was born as well. So Ernie Franz was a meet director for the USPF. Um, he was running his gym, Franz Health Studio or mm-hmm. Franz Health Club, and had the Franz team, and they were very good lifters. And he, mm-hmm. even back in these days, he was a very well-known meet director. In fact, he ran the 1981 IPF Masters Worlds in Naperville. Wow. At the time, Ernie was the USPF Masters chairman. Um there was issues at this meet, and I don't have all the details. This is kind of a he said, she said. One of your questions was like, mm-hmm. well, like how, "Where, where is this? Like, how are we determining this?" So it, when you talk to when you talk to Ernie about this, because I've had long discussions with both Ernie and Maris, mm-hmm. and 
there's never a time when I think they were like lying to me, but like everybody comes at something from a different perspective. Right. And the thing that Ernie kept coming back to is that he wanted to break masters into five-year increments because he had so many lifters that were traveling on the world. He wanted to medal people, give records, give awards Mm -hmm. via five-year masters increments. And that's how the APF WPC does it now versus the IPF, which does it basically, they have a 40s, they have a 50s, and a 60 plus. And I think that's it the last i checked they have three maybe they do 60 to 70 and 70 plus now Uh, but they don't they don't have too many masters categories like versus the apf wpc we have like nine it's right starting at 40 every five years up to 80 and i want to believe that like also i I get it where ernie's coming from of one to metal and podium people but it was also like hey there is a difference in the degradation think of like male lifters and your test production at 41 versus when you're 49. Well, it's interesting you bring up test production because uh, that's, <laughs> that's really something that neither Ernie nor Maris talked about a ton. And not that they were shy about talking about it, but uh, drug testing was a huge part of this. Oh, and yeah. Again, it is a, a few, massive piece of a this. A future episode I, I do want to do is to talk about doping and drug testing and how that came into the sport and how it mm-hmm. affected the sport. Yep. It's really intricately involved in what we're going to talk about today. Yep. Um, Ernie and Maris both claim that there was record broken, records broken that the IPF turned down. Now, you, you asked the question, Bain, uh, how so? How? I don't know. And I'm sure there's two sides of that coin. It could be that, um, you know, from the IPF standpoint, maybe they said the proper referees weren't in place. Mm-hmm. Or from Ernie's side, it may be that he said, well, they, you know, they're looking to discount lifts because there was an I-dotted or a T-crossed, something technical. That's the way that Ernie and Maris tell the story. Sure. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but there was definitely some anger coming out what, of that what, meet. What we do know for sure is that lists were turned down that were Correct. believed to be world records. Yeah, and that is a big deal because especially um, in those days, powerlifting, it wasn't as big of a sport. Right. And, you know, traveling to worlds, especially Masters worlds, I'm not going to say it wasn't a big deal. It probably was. But, you know, even in the current era, lifters will travel specifically to meets to set records. Yeah. And if they go to that meet and try to set records and then they're turned down, there's going to be a lot of anger on the lifters' part. This happened a couple years ago when APF Master Nationals, Teen Junior Master Nationals, was run in Michigan. And something happened where they didn't have the proper referee sitting. Mm-hmm. And the APF WPC currently, in order to set world records, it has to A, be at a national world meet. Mm-hmm. B, you have to have a minimum of two WPC international referees sitting. Not a state referee international. And this particular meet did not do that. Hmm. And so many world records were turned down. Mm. And after which that meet director was no longer a part of the APF. Womp womp. So similar situation here. Now let's fast forward a year, 1982. Great year. The IPF Masters Worlds in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Um, According to Ernie, again, this is according to Ernie, Many foreign lifters bombed, and this is Ernie and Maris both. Many foreign lifters bombed due to language barriers. I remember, and I don't know if it was from this specific meet. Um, this is kind of the the thing where the IPF holds up, you know, colored cards to let you know what the infraction is, as opposed to in the APF, you could just go up and ask them. Right. And I think, and I don't know if it was from this meet, but Ernie tells a story when a foreign lifter kept getting red lighted on her bench and. It looked like perfect and easy, and she she did it, redid it twice. Still got red lighted, 
and the referees wouldn't tell her anything. And so finally, Ernie went up, and I don't think she spoke English, so that was part of it. Ernie right. finally went up and said, well, what is the issue? And they said, well, you know, we're holding up the colored cards. And he's like, well, can you just tell me? Because she doesn't speak English. Right. Well, her head is slightly off the back of the bench. Oh, and I think okay. she was taking her own hand off. And that, if you look at the technicalities of the rule, that's your head has to be on the bench. It cannot be off the back of the bench. I don't know why that would give you any kind of advantage, but, you know, the rule's the rule. Yeah. And so Ernie said, okay, on the third one, scooch all the way down. I will give you a handoff, and we will get you a bench in the meet. Right. Um, and it was things like that. Maris talks about in her interview with me that Nate Foster, who I'm not familiar with, an mm-hmm. IPF official, and Ernie Franz, quote, got into it. Uh, yeah. Maris claims that she was sitting between the two of them and that it almost went to blows. Uh, her interview, she said f- words were thrown and fists were thrown. Yeah, so she said it was pretty serious. Yeah. Um, and the IPF Masters Worlds in 1982 led to the formation of the American Masters Powerlifting Federation. Amp. The AMPF which would later become the APF. So when we talk about this lawsuit, really the formation of the APF itself Mm -hmm. is intricately involved into what happened with this lawsuit. There is a massive ripple effect coming out of these two meets. Right, no doubt, no doubt. So the AMPF later became the APF. And what was not talked about at that point, but was an undercurrent of what was happening in general at this time frame was drug testing. Yep. And the Olympics were starting to drug test, you know, previous to this, um, you know, the US, the USPF and the IPF had always had. So, but it was interesting. If you read through uh, the watershed article, you know, they talk about how a lot of national federations for just sport, not powerlifting and strike sports, but just sport in general, were at first very hesitant about drug testing. Well, because they knew everybody was using right, drugs. Right, they, they did their own shit. And so it was really interesting to hear, you know, how they kind of danced around it. And whereas there were others that said, look, people want to do drugs, do drugs, whatever. And the, the argument that I've heard given was that why should the USPF be super stringent on drug testing when other, you know, countries are not going to be at their national, even though they're drug testing at the world's, well, let's try to get the best lifters we can to the world's drug testing be damned Mm -hmm. and when they get to worlds they can worry about it then Um, but that was a big difference between the apf and the uspf um and again this is a story for another time but parallel to the form formation of the apf was also and they talk about this in the watershed article Mm -hmm. the formation of the adfpa now Mm -hmm. that is a freaking mouthful the American Drug-Free Powerlifting Association, which was formed by Brother Bennett, mm-hmm. who was kind of like, almost like a crusader against drug use, if you look yeah. back into... Re- reading some of his quotes, like, holy crap. And that the Watershed article, you know, spoiler alert, its conclusion is that Ernie Franz in this lawsuit led to the downturn of powerlifting, basically. Yes. That's their contention. And this was written in 2007. Wrong. Which is interesting because that's probably when powerlifting was at its lowest around mm-hmm. that time, the, the mid to late 2000s. It would be interesting to see what Todd and Hunt think about you know, the current incarnation of powerlifting, um, which has seen a, a huge resurgence. So the ADFPA, you would, we would all know it actually became the USAPL. And th- through a number Ooh. of political undercurrent dealings and a lot due to that drug testing issue, mm-hmm. the IPF ousted their founding organization, the USPF, 
and the US, U, the ADFPA became the USAPL and is now the IPF affiliate. Yet another reason why I just fucking hate the IPF. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would love to get the story on this, and it, it would be interesting to find somebody who was around back then. Um, but the USPF at this point is is almost dead as an organization. I mean, they they still do sanction some meets, but you know, especially after Steve Dennison left, we talked about the USPA yep. losing the IPF affiliation. It is a shell of what it used to be, which was the basically the first uh, outside of the AAU, which was not a powerlifting specific organization. Yep. Um, it was the founding, you know, organization in general for powerlifting. Um, so. Let's fast forward a little bit. So that was 1982. The AMPF was formed. The APF was formed. Um, the first, quote, WPC meet was held September 16th, 1984. This is a important day. How old are you? Were you one? Uh, I would have been... 18 months old. Yeah, just over one, because I was born in 83. Yeah. So the APF at the time, um, they had their first world meet. And according to Maris, it only ended up being about like 20 or 30 lifters, mm-hmm. but... Ernie Franz and the APF, which would become the WPC internationally, mm-hmm. invited South Africa to come compete. Which that, That's a big deal this time. At this time, it was a very controversial thing to do. And why, you might ask? Well, if you look back into history, apartheid, or you know, the separation of individuals based on their race, mm-hmm. was still a thing in South Africa at this time. It was legal separation. It wasn't even a, just a cultural thing. Like It was legally like... And it and it wasn't just separation of like, hey, you can go to the same building and there's a colored bathroom and a and a white bathroom. It was you had completely separate sections of of whole cities, and you couldn't cross the tracks. Yep, crazy. And uh, Ernie Franz decided his words to depoliticize the sport, which I personally disagree with because by starting his own organization, he by default politicized it. <laughs> Uh, fair. I think his point was, and I've heard him talk about this, it's not the fault of the lifters, the governmental policies. Which is correct. I will give so that. that was his point, was that, hey, these people just want a place to lift internationally. And that's why he opened the WPC up to South Africa. Because at the time, the IPF had banned South Africa from competing. Um, I, don't, I'm, I think it was probably following the Olympic model, which also had probably banned South Africa. Yep. And I think that was Ernie's point. And you could say it's wrong, but his point was, hey, the lifters have nothing to do with governmental policy. They just want a place to lift. They're not racist, we hope, um, or that would have been his contention. And so they just want to lift with somebody else. So let's invite them to be part of our organization. And so this was the first kind of international meet with the APF. Leading into this, the IPF put out basically that... Oh, God, this... They, the IPF planned to ban anyone involved in this non-IPF competition. This is where, because because many of these rules are still, like, similar ones are still in place, the IPF. I'm not sure that 14.9 was a rule back then, which we'll talk about at the end of right. this. But, but the, I, this but, is that holier-than-thou rule that just drives me insane. This was a proclamation, as I understand it. I'm not sure there was specific bylaws back then. Maybe there was. Now, one important thing to note is that at this time, between Mm -hmm. 82 and 85, when Mm -hmm. this all kind of went down, Ernie Franz was dual sanctioning his meets, as he said. You know, he was dual sanctioning at USPF and APF. Mm -hmm. And originally it was just AMPF because it was, you know, kind of just the master's organization, which then led to, you know, the APF. And by that point, then its main point of difference was 
drug testing. Mm-hmm. And he had apparently advertisements in Powerlifting USA that said, we will never drug test in the APF. Oh, boy. <laughs> At least he was being transparent. It, it, which I appreciate that. He, he's being transparent. And that's, you know, when you look at the IPF and the USAPL, you know, ADFPA at that time and USPL, like, that's the big thing is when you talk, start talking about drugs, man, they get all fidgety. They do not like it. So Maris Sternberg, who was my former coach, she was a big individual in the origin of the APF. She was the, the original secretary of the APF, WPC, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a pioneer in women's powerlifting. Um, another very strong lifter in the France team at that time, Felicia Johnson, who I later uh, had her daughter in my summer camp, which is ironic. Wow. Kind of how things come full circle. Mm-hmm. And chatted with her briefly. She only lifted for that short period of time. She did not stick with the sport, but still lived in Aurora. Mm-hmm. Um, but both Maris and Felicia won first place at the 1985 USPF Women's Nationals. However, neither of them received a spot at the, uh, the 1985 USPF National Team to go to Women's Worlds. And can we talk about for a second just how they were informed they were not going to get that spot? Yeah, go ahead. So that, that was, it was really interesting reading as I read through both the uh, Watershed article and then also the interview with Maris is they went and, com- and competed at the meet. The way she had explained it, it didn't make a ton of sense at first. It sounded like she didn't get to compete at nationals. They did, obviously. They won. And they were told during the team meeting after the meet, by the way, you can't go. Right. And <laughs> then they ended up through a very generous donation, were able to still attend Worlds and were given, as I understand, hot pink T-shirts that yep. said T- uh, national champion and I should be lifting in this meet or something. Precisely. The That's the way Maris tells it, yes. It's exactly how she tells it. And that that actually made – I remember hearing about that somehow, like well before I got into powerlifting. Like I should be lifting in, these meet, in this meet and like – a hot pink T-shirt. I remember hearing about that for some reason. Yep, yep. And I think Ernie did the did the print on that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Maris claims that she and uh, she and Felicia, and I mean, after this meet, Ernie was banned from mm-hmm. being an official of USPF IPF meets as well. I, I mean, after this, he was done with the USPF and IPF, right? Definitely. But well, yeah. all the officials were banned. But specifically. You know, Maris and Johnson, Maris Sternberg and Felicia Johnson, mm-hmm. she felt they were singled out. And they were Franz lifters, by the way. Both those yep. two lifted on the Franz team. So that I mean, the, op- the optics look like that. <laughs> that's an important detail. Maris claims that uh, there was another lifter. Uh, let's see if I can find his name. Uh, Danny Taylor? Yes, Danny Taylor, who also uh, attended the meet. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if he lifted, uh, but he attended the meet, but he was still put on the Masters World team. Hmm. And so, you know, her feeling, her feeling was that her and Felicia and Ernie were singled out. Hmm. So, uh, you know, let's fast forward just a little bit because this isn't very much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, they decided to sue the USPF, uh, the president of the USPF at the time, who we'll talk about a little bit later, yep. who, you know, really uh, Conrad Cotter at the time. And... Uh, the IPF under the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1980. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Conrad Cotter, and for those of you that don't know, if you're like the president of a powerlifting organization, even back then, it is not a paid position. It's basically a volunteer position. Aren't you making billions and billions and billions? No, the only people who usually would get paid in a powerlifting organization is if it's a, a pure for-profit business, and there are some like that, but 
at this time, the APF, the USPF, they were all non-for-profit organizations. And so you might get a small stipend and a travel kind of mm-hmm. thing, but it was if you have a secretary, that would be the only person to be getting paid. So, Just a quick housekeeping note. The Sherman Antitrust Act actually is from 1890. Presented by oh, I'm sorry, President I, Benjamin Harrison. I, I transcribed the numbers. No, you're you're good. I just want to make sure that we're yeah. all because there there is another act that they cite in this uh, about amateur athletes that is closer to 1980. Yeah, no, I I just transcribed the numbers. It was 1890. All yes. good. All good. Yep. So they sue the USPF, Conrad Cotter, and the IPF. So the IPF just flat out didn't show up. Imagine that they didn't even feel that they needed to show up. They didn't feel that this applied to them. The, this, again, is just the arrogance of the IPF that drives me insane. And as a result, Ernie Franz, mm-hmm. the APF, Felicia Johnson eventually dropped out, according to Maris. At a certain point, you had to come up with a little bit of cash to keep it going. Mm. And she didn't have the cash, and she really didn't want to be involved anymore again. I think shortly thereafter, she just decided to be done with powerlifting. Sure. And so she was dropped, but Maris, uh, the APF, and Ernie Franz all stayed on. Mm-hmm. Um, the ruling was made via default. And if you know what default means, basically you win with, you know, without a trial. Like yep. You're just assumed to win. It's like forfeiting in, in sports. Yeah, you, you didn't show. That's what it is. The judgment was 20000 to the APF. This is a significant judgment, too, by the way. 84000 to Franz Health Studio. Yeah. And 14000 to Maris Sternberg individually. And the, and the way they went through that judgment was they used the Clayton Act that basically said that because they are amateurs, and this is in any, whether it's sport or not, that no governing body can tell an amateur where they can go and compete or, or practice their craft. Right. And that's what they laid leverage to get this very, I mean, six-figure judgment for, between the three of them. And, you know, this is in 1987. So this was, the order was was finally dated on February 3rd, mm-hmm. 1987. So this is a couple years later. And if any of you have ever been involved in a lawsuit, of which I was recently. I have been as well. They take a long freaking time. Oh, my God. And then when you think they're done. But wait, there's more. So what is interesting is I always thought, you know, Ernie and the APF and Maris won outright. But in actuality, they lost to the USPF, and they lost to Conrad Cotter, the president of the USPF. Mm-hmm. They basically only and, – and, and who knows? No one is really going to know whether or not Ernie and Maris – and the APF would have won if they would have gone to court versus the IPF. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the USPF, because the USPF did not ban Maris, because they did not ban Felicia from competing in their meets, mm-hmm. they were only banned from IPF meets, right. even though I would argue that they still were complicit because they didn't put them on the world team, but maybe yeah. they did that because they knew that they were going to be banned. And, to me, and- they were complicit, but the USPF was ruled, uh, yeah. you know, they there was no judgment against the USPF. In fact, originally Conrad Cotter, who was individually Which named in the sucks, lawsuit, by the way, individually named in the lawsuit, was originally granted attorney fees. And which, if they felt that this was a frivolous lawsuit, which mm-hmm. uh, the original judge did, he said something like it was a colorful, you know, a colorful. Uh, I can't think of the word. Uh, the, the, conspir- like colorful conspiracy. He yeah. didn't believe the USPF was liable, but yeah. he said, you know, that's not frivolous. But he did feel that Ernie, the APF, and Maris were wrong in naming Conrad Cotter personally. individually, personally. Yeah. And so he was originally granted his attorney fees. And then? So he was granted his attorney fees, and they said, okay, what's your attorney fees? He requested 
$44,000 for his attorney's fees. Listen, motherfucker, you're not O.J. Simpson. It wasn't 44 grand. $4,300 in actual and 40000 to, quote, pursue said money. The judge felt that this was so outrageous mm-hmm. that he threw out the ruling giving any money to Conrad Cotter. His, his own ruling. He threw, the right. judge threw out his own ruling. Right. He threw out his own ruling after granting money from the APF, from Ernie, from Maris, which maybe they would have said, sure, take it out of the IPF ruling. Mm-hmm. Um, from that, he then threw it out because Cotter requested and his lawyer requested so much money. So here's, here's just a quick segue on this. We live in the United States. We live in one of the most litigious societies on the planet. Yeah, you can no sue doubt. anybody for anything. Right. But at some point, and, and I love seeing this because at some point you do get a judge who goes, listen, I understand that technically you may be at the level of law saying you chose to pursue this. You're a jackass. You don't get anything. Right. And he, he won originally. And that's really, if you he got, look. He got greedy, man. If you look at the actual court ruling, very little is said about the IPF. And I, I kept searching for like something where they talked about yeah. the ruling against the IPF. Uh, actually, the only thing I found was in that Watershed article where they list the actual dollar amounts. Um, so what's interesting about that, too, is in the Watershed article, and, th- and this is why I think, think it's really interesting about the USPF, is that they talk about how members of the USPF committee even said, hey, we, we don't necessarily agree with the IPF on this. Right, but we're just going... We're just going along with it. We're so. just going along, yeah. We're, I mean, we're it, just doing what we were told. Yeah, other people said that too. Mm, Didn't work out so well for yep. them. Yeah, they talk about Judy Gedney, who passed mm-hmm. away last year, who yep. is a very big individual in women's powerlifting and in the USPF at this time. Mm-hmm. And it, you can... Uh, maybe I'll even link the... The powerlifting I think it watershed. Would make sense, man. There's so much information yeah, in there. There's a lot in this powerlifting watershed article that we just can't go through here, and I don't want to, you know, just read their article. I mean, no. they did a lot of work on it. Um, we'll reference it, but you know, they talk about Judy Gedney, who ironically then left the yeah, USPF right after this, and eventually for and then once the ADFPA became the IPF affiliate, mm-hmm. she left that organization and helped form the ADFPF, the American Drug Free Powerlifting Federation. Go back to our alphabet soup episode. Right. Get all which, these. <laughs> which was basically the same organization the, the ADFPA had been to be the world affiliate to the WDFPF after the ADFPA left to become the IPF affiliate. She felt that they were no longer going to fulfill their mission of being drug-free when they became the IPF affiliate. Yeah. But as, as you're hearing all this, you're kind of seeing where this is all going. Because you hear the, the alphabet soup starting to form. From this one little microcosm of a case, you know, it's an argument over drug testing is what this really comes down to. Yes, it is. And there's a little bit on apartheid. But in the end of the day, the underlying disagreement between, sure, Ernie talks about five-year versus 10-year increments. I think at the end of the day, if drug testing had not been a thing, he probably could have, they could have figured out a compromise or Ernie just would have said, okay, you know, there's some undercurrents, at which people still talk about this today, mm-hmm. that the IPF was kind of in their, quote, ivory towers, mm-hmm. and they weren't really listening well, to the was. lifters. Well, yeah. <laughs> at this time, maybe still today, but Ernie and Maris both talk about how they weren't really listening to the concerns of the lifters. And uh, they would argue one of the concerns was drug testing. The lifters didn't want it. The IPF did. Yeah. I mean, I, I've said a few times on the show how I'm not a big IPF fan. There's a, there's a lot of things that I did with the USAPL and the IPF that just don't sit well with me. The drug testing, honestly, I'm indifferent to that. I could care less. But I do agree with they don't think about and are looking out for the best interest of the lifters in that I watched their safety protocols. 
I watch how lifters are treated if they're not part of the quote unquote elite group. I just there's so many things that I have that don't sit well with me with either one of these organizations. But anyway, so let's digress. 1987, the ruling is made, mm-hmm. and Maris talks about how as soon as they got it, they were saying, "Well, we're probably never going to see that." Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's an international organization. What do they have to pay? Right. So, what happened? So from 1987 until 2002. It's a long time. Yeah, especially considering the USA is the biggest market for powerlifting. At yep. that time, especially the 80s. Like, powerlifting was just starting to take root mm-hmm. in other parts of the world. The IPF didn't run a world meet in the United States from 1987 until 2002. 15 years. And according to Maris, they were ready to show up with, with U.S. Marshals and shut down the meat and seize any assets if had the IPF... And arrest officials. And, well, again, that's according to Maris. Who that's knows according what, to Maris. I who knows it. what would have actually happened. This it. is what Maris said, and God rest her soul, she passed away a couple years ago. God, I wish I had had the foresight to put a tape recorder on, and cause some of the stories she told on the way that I, when we used to drive out to Dubuque, Iowa, and mm-hmm. help at Bill Carpenter's meets, mm-hmm. I, I can't even remember half of them. They were so unbelievable. Yeah. This is the best one, but uh, this and next week's. But, you know, if I could have put a tape recorder on some of her stories, unbelievable. She, she had, she and, even and had. you all thought your meets had drama. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this isn't even going into the one where supposedly Ernie Franz was almost going to be uh, you know, the official from, uh, what country was it? Somewhere in the south part of Europe, supposedly mm-hmm. was going to put a hit out on Ernie. <laughs> That's, that's if we can ever get Ernie on and and get him that, we, you know, we get just, him going on the right track. We, we um, just gotta like put a microphone in front of him and just get get him talking. That's all we gotta do. Yeah. So according to Maris, they were ready to show up at any IPF meet. Now this is not USPF because remember, even though the USPF and IPF are interrelated, mm-hmm. technically the USPF and the IPF are separate organizations. Separate equal. The <laughs> that would be South Africa. Hey, hey. Oh, they said they didn't say separate. They said not separate. Yeah, they, they had just said separate, not equal, yeah. right? Nah, nah. Um, but the USPF was the affiliate to the IPF, but once they formed the IPF and they became their own thing, they are separate organizations. Mm-hmm. And so the IPF just didn't run any world meets in the U.S. for what is that? 15 years. 15, 15 years. That is, years. And if you know now, I mean, it's probably because there's a lot of world meets. It's probably maybe every other year, every third year. Three, four years. There, you know, yeah. there's every few years, there's usually a world meet in the United States. And th- this is where our IPF newsletter reference comes from. Norbert Wallach, mm-hmm. the IPF president at the time in 2001. I'm quoting directly from the newsletter. Quote, I am pleased that after 18 years... IPF World Championship events are again scheduled in the USA, the home of powerlifting. The IPF Masters Bench Press World Championships in April 2001 will be held in Texas. A special thanks goes to John Inzer for removing the Ernie Franz judgment from the IPF. Stay tuned next week, kids. Unquote. And so he says 18 years. It probably was, you know. They probably just hadn't run a couple uh, run an IPF World Meet in the U.S. for a couple of years, right? And then they made a concentrated effort not to go back, right? After the 1987 judgment, right? So again, according to Maris, they were ready. They were ready to show up and seize assets. I mean, they had, gosh, between the three, between the APF, Franz, and Maris, you got in the six figures of judgments against the IPF. And I can tell you, it's 118 thousand dollars. Having been in a lawsuit from the time that judgment is made, mm-hmm. interest starts accruing. So from 1987 until 2002, 
there is interest accruing. Now, you have to go back to the court to try to enforce and collect. It's not as though the court like automatically, you know, takes that money. What the court and, would rather especially from an international organization. Right. What fun. the court would rather you do is, okay, here's the judgment and now you guys go work out and then come back to us if it's settled. Or, yep. you know, then you have to go through go back to the court and do mediation. You know, or, yeah, you have to do uh, wage garnishment or non-wage garnishment, which yeah. I'm somewhat familiar with. Um, or, you know, some other type of deal to get that, that money judgment enforced. Unfortunately, you have to go back to court. Yeah. So that is uh, kind of where we end with this lawsuit. Mm-hmm. The lawsuit between the, the Franz conglomerate and the IPF was eventually settled in 2001. Mm-hmm. And it was through John Inzer founder of Enzer Advanced Designs, and through another lawsuit, which we will go into next week, yep. the Enzer v. Franz lawsuit. Yes. And I don't want to spoil that because there's a ton that goes into that one this, as well. This one, this one goes deep, kids. But yeah. these two lawsuits... Stay tuned. I didn't, I didn't quite understand how these two things were inter, intertwined until I talked to Maris because, you know, you kind of read stuff online and you, mm-hmm. you'd heard about... You know how the IPF hadn't been in the U.S. for many years, and you heard about the lawsuit of Maris and Ernie with mm-hmm. the IPF. I heard about the lawsuit between Inzer and Ernie, but I wasn't exactly sure how they were interrelated. And I, and I'm I was almost kind of shocked to find in in plain bold black and white print yeah. where it is laid out 100 that yes, John Inzer was the one who removed the Ernie Franz lawsuit from the IPF. That allowed the IPF to come back to the United States. Yeah, it was interesting because I I also heard like the bits and pieces as I started kind of coming around the sport, and I'm just like, okay, Ernie's this great guy, but man, he sues a lot of people. Yeah, he only he only sued one. Yeah, and was, then was sued, or he was like, he was a part of you know so many of these. I'm like, man, this is yeah. There was a, a lot of lawsuits there. It's a weird group of people. Yeah, no doubt. So, what are the implications of this lawsuit? Um, yeah, Hunt and Todd. In their powerlifting watershed, they definitively have very clear conclusions. And I would give them 100% credit for their research, for their history, for giving the background, some personal background. Mm -hmm. Um, They make the case, basically, that the Franz lawsuit, along with doping, and that's kind of like a secondary issue, ironically, to them in this article. They say, well, the Franz lawsuit and maybe doping, maybe drug testing, is (laughs) basically what ruined powerlifting as 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 a sport and far as getting into the Olympics, getting TV coverage, mm-hmm. um, staying as a, a succinct, solid sport, uh, that's the case that they make. And that this lawsuit was the, the start of the proliferation of so many powerlifting federations. I, I'm not going to disagree with that last part. I mean, I know that that's, that is the nature of... A, of things here in the United States, right? Is that if you don't like what's going on in an industry, in a market, you can go off and do your own thing and try to do it yourself. And I think that this probably led to a lot of that. So I, I am inclined to agree with it did lead to some of the fragmentation we see now. Now, do I think that that is, you know, what ruined... Inherently the, bad? I, I don't know. It's market... It should be market-driven, right? Because... Yeah, we talked about that in our yeah. alphabet soup bar, uh uh, episode right if you if you provide a product and that product is the type of environment you want to lift in that people want to come to and they pay your money therefore you're doing okay you you respond to the market i will make the argument that this lawsuit definitely led to partly the form of the apf which you know if you go back and listen to our alphabet soup 
episode. This mm-hmm. is you know because we, we mentioned some of this in that episode too. We did. We just didn't go as in depth in this, but you know, uh, true. Once the once you kind of like. Once that, you know, we talked about like the four minute mile was broken and then it mm-hmm. was like the floodgates. Once the floodgates were open, yes. Yep. Then it's like, oh, well, it's not that hard to start a powerlifting organization. And it's interesting because you look at the two strength, the two main strength barbell sports. You've got, you know, powerlifting and you've got Olympic weightlifting. Olympic weightlifting, as far as I know, has almost never had any other organization other than USA weightlifting. I'm told that for a short time there was a guy in Texas who was doing some non-tested Olympic weightlifting, mm-hmm. but he either passed away or got out of it. And it, it's just odd to me. I think it must just be the type of people that are attracted to powerlifting versus the type of people that are attracted to Olympic lifting and how you probably can stay powerlifting longer than you can stay Olympic lifting. Um, even think about bodybuilding. For the most part, everybody goes to one organization for bodybuilding. There are smaller, you yeah. know, drug-free, drug-tested, but they're nothing. filters like, up to the IFPB. Nothing is like the IFPB. And so it's like you got Olympic lifting where everything's drug tested. Yep. USA weightlifting, basically one organization. You've got bodybuilding. No one's drug tested. <laughs> no one's drug tested except for some small, you know, more minor. Mm-hmm. And you've got powerlifting where you've, it's kind of in between and you've got both and you've got this big split. I, make the, I would make the argument, and I made this in our uh, Alphabet Soup episode, this was inevitable. Drug testing inevitably was going to lead to fragmentation, to proliferation of powerlifting federations. Mm-hmm. Ernie was just the first one to do it because he was, you know, maybe a right place, right time. Maybe he had that entrepreneurial spirit. Maybe he had that outlaw type of attitude, um, and that's what this was considered back then. That that South African meat mm-hmm. was considered the outlaw meat. That Ernie was, you know, he was going against the IPF. He was going against the prevailing wisdom of sport in general at that time. Yeah, I mean, he was... And, and I think I, I do see, as we talk through this, like kind of where his head was at. Like, hey, let's not make it about your government. Let's just say, you guys want to come lift? Let's lift. And let's... Because it, I think about you know soccer as a sport, right? Soccer is one of, the cool, one of the coolest sports in the world. It is the only sport that I know of that has ended a civil war. Navy Coast. When they qualify for the World Cup, they ended their civil war. Wow, and so I w- now I don't believe that Ernie was thinking about that necessarily. No, but hey, if this is the thing that starts that, when we say, "Hey, these athletes are are humans, and they're you know they can come and compete," cool, awesome, or they can be the people that see, "Hey, we don't need to have apartheid in our country because we go to these other countries and they don't have it, and things are and things are good, things and they're are great, good, you know." And so you know, may- maybe there was a similar to that thought somewhere when he was putting this together, or he could have said, "How can I piss them off the most? I'm gonna." Bring in the South Africans. I don't right. Know. Yeah. I don't, Ernie, I don't think Ernie went. Knowing, I don't think he's either one of those extremes. Yeah, knowing Ernie the way that I know him, he probably saw it from two vantage points. He is the type of person that wants to help people and probably thought, hey, we've got these lifters that don't have an international platform to lift. I would like to provide that to them. And Ernie was also a businessman and he saw a niche in the marketplace mm-hmm. where, hey, this these people aren't being served. And if I could serve them and start up my own organization and make some money for myself and my gym and my family and my team, hey, that's something I, I would like to do. And that's essentially where the APF came from. Um, but was the Franz lawsuit what ruined, quote, ruined the sport? I mean, this kind of goes back to our, uh, you know, our response to... Uh, the article on, mm-hmm. you know, what needs to be fixed in powerlifting <laughs> oh, with rip. Mark Ripito. 
it goes back to that. Like, I don't know that powerlifting needed to be fixed when we went through that. I don't know that powerlifting was, quote, ruined. It's interesting the context of their article being written in 2007 mm -hmm. when powerlifting was probably at its lowest point as far as participation and numbers versus now. Um, I wonder what their perspective would be, you know, 13 years later. I wonder how Rip would respond to that article. <laughs> uh, probably with an overhead press, man. I don't know. Yeah, he would probably say, let's uh, let's add an overhead press instead. Yeah, and look down on our squad. Yeah they, yeah, they talk a lot about doping in the article, which it is intricately involved in what happened. Mm -hmm. But it, doping had nothing to do with the lawsuit. They didn't talk about doping at all. No, not in the lawsuit, no. There was probably, though, an undercurrent of that, hey, those lifters are from Franz. Mm -hmm. The Franz lifters are probably using. Mm -hmm. And so let's ban them because not only have they now broken the rules by lifting in the outlaw meet with the South Africans, but we know they're probably using. And to be fair, it's probable they were. I don't know about Felicia. Maris, I would say most likely at that time. And majority of Franz's lifters. Majority of Franz's lifters back in those times. But to be fair, let's go back to 1985. Most. Up until 1993, anabolic steroids was not categorized as a Schedule Three drug. Right. According to some lifters, again, this is folklore. This is hearsay. You could just go to your doctor and say, I want to get strong, and they mm -hmm. could prescribe you steroids. Now, probably a lot of lifters didn't go on a prescription. They probably, you know, found a friend that yeah. could help them. I got a buddy. Anti-aging, you know. Right. Well, that didn't, wasn't even a thing then. They didn't even need that back then. <laughs> they just said, here, take this. It'll make you big and strong. Yeah. But that was true of most USP, USPF lifters at that time. Yeah, it, it, it's. I mean, we go back to that Hawaii record breakers, 1982. Mm -hmm. Do we think that Kaz and Fred Hatfield and you know Gus Rethwich and all those lifters were drug free? Not unless they got their wrong. Drugs, not unless they got their drugs for free. Yeah, and that's not to denigrate. Always, always possible. And that's not to denigrate any of those lifters. That that's just what was done in you know, the early 80s. Let's let's be very clear too about steroids and performance enhancing drugs. I don't care if you take the stuff. If you don't do the work in the gym, you're not going to get big and strong. Sure. Taking the stuff, just if you just took the stuff, you would just get fat. Right, right. Um, you know, we talk about the antitrust law. We talk about the Sherman or the Clayton Act, and we mm -hmm. talked about the Sherman Antitrust Act. Yep. Does that mean anything in sports? That's the question. Should it mean anything in sports? And, we're, and we're, again, we're talking about amateur sports because up till now, yeah. there's nothing that's professional. Even if you make money, that's not professional. No. That's not like you're, you know, sure, if you're in the NFL and you have a multi-million dollar contract, of course they can restrict you from playing at another football league because that's your job. Correct. That, that's your, your contracted. You're signing a solo contract with them. In this case, it is, a, it is amateur. It is a hobby. Even if you win a, a prize, they, they're not, when you get that prize money, you're not signing a contract that says, hey, I only do the tribute meet in right. San Antonio every year. Unless no. it's paying me, you know. 500 grand or yeah, something for least, the winners. At least. <laughs> Give my damn money. Shit. So, yeah, I mean, I make the point that, you know, powerlifting would have split eventually, maybe not as much, maybe not as soon. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to talk next about this IPF bylaw. Uh, I do think there is, there should be something for amateur athletes mm -hmm. where they should be allowed to compete where they want. Yeah, 100% they should. I mean, this is... I have a big issue with this bylaw. So, let's let's dive into it. So yeah, this is this is fourteen point nine, which is referenced a lot. Mm -hmm. um, this is from the IPF bylaws. This is not in their rule book. They have mm -hmm. a they have a separate bylaws, and they actually have a separate other thing where it talks about like 
social media use and other stuff, which like, you know, best ethics policy, which is where I thought it would be, but this is in their bylaws. Mm -hmm. 14.9, participating in non-IPF competition. Quote, any lifter, coach, referee, or official who competes or participates in an international powerlifting or bench press competition not organized, sanctioned, or approved by the IPF shall not be permitted to take place, take part in any IPF international or regional competition for a period of 12 months from the date of that non-approved competition. 14.9.1, notwithstanding Article 14.9, the lifter, coach, or official may participate in multi-sport international games, e.g. the Commonwealth Games, the University Games, or the Students International or Regional Multi-Sports Games that is not sanctioned by the IPF, however, provided that there is not any athlete or other person participating in such games in any capacity who is serving his or her ineligibility period for a doping offense. So basically what they are saying is is two things going on. They're saying you can't participate in a non-sanctioned event. and A non-international. Right. And also if anybody participating in a non-sanctioned international event that is okayed by us, i.e. these ones, that is serving a ineligibility period, then you're also ineligible. So, so this, they're controlling what you can do and who you can hang out with. Right. This is where that it came out that you know there was maybe going to be some bands when people were going to like do a seminar with Ed Cohn, who is on the perma band IPF yes, list. Yes. That and that was a big. Like, they actually came out and they. I, I've got to find that. I should have found that for this uh, this podcast where they actually said like if you go to this you will be banned. Yeah, that no, was in I writing don't. in black. Like, well, some of my research, what I didn't reference, but I, I looked at, was Miles Cantor, who at the time was involved with the Raw Unity Meet. We talked mm-hmm. about Eric Talmet, yeah, yeah, yeah. who was involved in that. Um, the Raw Unity Meet was kind of when raw lifting was first taking off, and rum, rum, and a lot of organizations did not have a a raw division or a big raw meet. You know that NURB meet we talked about last week, the Northeast Record Breakers Meet, was the first kind of big raw meet. And rum was kind of the successor to that, which, you know, went around for three, four, five years. And at that time, because it became an international meet, lifters were told, US, USAPL lifters, IPF lifters are told, if you compete in rum, we will enforce Rule 14.9, and you will not be eligible to compete in IPF meets. And Miles Cantor did a whole kind of couple, couple article look into this rule, which is how I eventually found my way to the IPF bylaws and found this rule, 14.9. Um, so here's the question. Given rule 14.9 and given the court ruling of Franz versus the IPF, could someone challenge the IPF based on this rule and based on using Franz v. IPF as a precedent? I don't, to my knowledge, nobody has. Could somebody? Is the juice worth the squeeze? That that to me is really where it comes from. Yeah, so. no, a hundred percent. And and why I don't think anybody has, you know, gone into this because not only do you have to show that they have violated the Clayton Act and violated the Sherman Antitrust Act, mm-hmm. but you also have to show damages. And that that's right. And, and if you if you go into the lawsuit that Ernie filed, and you you go into the article, the watershed article, mm-hmm. you know, Ernie's lawyers and Maris's lawyers, they do make the case that. Franz Health Studios, the the APF, and Mayor Sternberg were damaged by Sternberg and Johnson not being promoted to the IPF World Team. That that you know inhibited their business. That inhibited and employment opportunities. Yeah, inhibited inhibited Maris from possible sponsorships. Mm-hmm. 
Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Again, the ruling was via default. But the argument right. they make in there is, and, and presumably why they gave them, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like they just would have created this $118,000 judgment out of nowhere. Maybe yeah, it came from someone. I mean, they had to have requested something. It had to be, obviously, there's attorney's fees in there, too. But, right. I mean, I'm looking at it, especially the Franz Health Studio, 84000 Okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a real number. Like I assume Franz Health Studios probably assumed the legal cost. He probably was who actually hired the lawyer. Oh, I'm sure, but so, still, 84K. But yeah, 84K is, is a lot of money. Yeah, like I find that on the ground, I'm still fighting for it. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so it, it, it would be interesting to see if somebody really wanted – you know, if they would want to challenge that, you know, 14.9 bylaw. We've talked a, a couple times in this podcast about Blaine Sumner, one of my favorite IPF oh, yeah. USAPL lifters. Fantastic. I mean, gosh, walked out 522.5 yeah. kilo, whatever the hell he, it was. Yeah, he just did, uh, you know, a PR competition squad at the Arnold Classic USAPL meet. Unbelievable lifter. Yeah, after almost slicing his arm off. Oh, my gosh. And he's people have questioned him on Instagram. Hey, have you ever thought about lifting the WPO? You'd be great in a monolift squat bar and with maybe another layer of equipment. Yep. And I, I've seen him basically say, I'm interested, but I know because of 14.9, mm-hmm. once I decide to do that, I'm, I'm, done. I'm done with the yep. IPF. And he probably is saying, well, I, I just want to achieve my goals in the IPF while I still can. And while I've got the juice to do so, it's not worth the fight. And that's why I don't think anybody's challenged it. And additionally, what is the legal precedent on a default judgment? Sure, that's what was ruled. But yeah. could another judge come up and say, well, there was no real legal argument that got argued one way or the other. It was just via default. Yeah, you, you showed up and they didn't. I do think there is merit to it. I do think there is there is something there about you know the Clayton Act and on the Sherman Antitrust Act. So I think that you would lean more on those two versus the Franz versus IPF. Because Franz versus IPF, it's not, I mean, especially being default, it's not a precedent center. That's the thing. If they'd actually gone to court and, st- and won, then you've got a big precedent well, center. Especially since he lost versus the USPF. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it seems theoretically, like, especially when you talk about, you know, the Clayton amateur, you know, amateur athlete mm-hmm. ruling, um, you know, that you can't determine where amateur athletes compete and you can't restrict them from competing in other organizations. Correct. It seems like there would be something there. To me, it feels like there is. But again, it, the only people to me that would have any reason to go after this would be Ray Williams, um, Blaine. I mean, John Hack didn't even bother. He just said, screw it, and just left. Sure. And, I mean, he would have had a good shot at it. Like, I mean, he was one of the best they it, had. It would, it would really like, take it. someone who just wanted to do it just to prove a point. Yeah, but that, that also, would be the, uh, He also came out right away and said he had been on SARS for a while. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, that's probably the other element of it, is people probably think, well, you know, once I leave, then I don't have to be as careful about my drug testing. Yeah. And I'm not saying that anybody's on anything. Blaine Sumner, Ray Williams, any of those guys. I, I, Blaine has never failed a test. He's, he passes right. out of competition tests. Same thing with Ray. They, they, do, they do exactly the level of the law that I've yeah. seen to this point. Definitely. But there certainly are other lifters mm-hmm. whom, you know, at the very least, once that, you know, drug testing is taken out, um, you know, maybe things change slightly in the way that they train and, mm-hmm. quote, supplement. Correct. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I'll, I'll tell you what. I know you're going to post all this in the, uh, you know, we make this post on, uh, on Instagram and, and other social media platforms. Th- this stuff is just fascinating. Because when you start digging into the intricacies of the sport, it goes way beyond white lights uh, when you really get into it. And when you've got 
Here's the other funny thing, and this is kind of what made me laugh about as I read through the IPF and the USPF uh, judgments and everything. And then, of course, Conrad Cotter's whole deal. You have these massive egos that are going along with this. Because you, ha- you have to have that kind of ego if you're going to do what we do, right? And so you have all this ego coming into this and then trying to do, quote-unquote, what's right for the lifters, right for the sport. I'm not saying things are either way. But that is what is fascinating to me is how then it, things continue to fragment. Now, will it ever get pulled back together? I hope so. But at the end of the day, if you're going to follow you know, the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, you always run the risk of fragmentation and the splintering of the sport. And that is what is different here in the United States versus mm-hmm. other countries. I mean, we yeah. talk about South Africa. Yeah. Um, there was a – I think it was – and they talk about this. I'm not sure if they talk about it in this – article or the other one where they talk about how drug text drug testing officials showed up at WPC worlds. Oh, uh, I don't know if it was mentioned here. Yeah, I do. I've heard that story. Yeah. And U S lifters are literally running out of the door, yeah. running out of the back door of the ballroom. And, and what happened in France too, where like they had to fight that, like the, that was, the government. That was literally just recently. Yeah, like they were fighting the government to have just to, to be an entity. The WPC affiliate in France was fighting with the government and they had to do something specific. And it's hard. I do follow them on Facebook, but there's a translation there, and, yeah, it's a, rough. and it's hard to understand exactly what they're saying. But basically, the premise of it was the government of France was giving them trouble mm-hmm. for existing as a non-IPF organization. Yep. And in South Africa, for up until, I think, 2018, WPC was gone. They were ruled by the government that could not exist. Yeah, I think the, the last... Anything was 2010 when uh, Marozier won Worlds there. No, uh, it was well before that. I think it was, that would have been like 2003. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I think Marozier might have gone to Worlds in 2010, but that was not in South Africa. I okay. think Marozier went to Worlds in 2001, 2003 in South Africa. You, we'll have to check on that. Yeah, I got to dig on that one. But it definitely was not 2010. Okay. Um, it was much before that. And the, the WPC South Africa was gone. They were banned. Wow. And I talked to some of those guys when they showed up at 2018 WPC Worlds, and they the same guys were still around. Hmm. Um, a guy who'd competed back then, and now his son was competing, he said, yeah, for a while we were just not allowed to exist because the government basically ruled if you want to do powerlifting, it has to be through the IPF. I mean, I can't be surprised because if you read through the minutes on that uh, IPF uh, Worlds meeting, they actually talk about lifters who are in uh, under sanction or who are you know currently banned. As people do not exist, they actually say that specifically. So, that. so it's almost like uh, the Scientology, where yes. you're a what do they call that? A, a Whatever you're a non-believer, suppressive person. Yeah. SP, yes. SP. Uh, I, there's a. I'm not saying that Scientology. <laughs> oh, and IPF here are the we same, go. Here we go. But I'll tell you what. There's some similarities in the way that if you read that newsletter, the yep. way that they approach people that are non-IPF, mm-hmm. and the way that Scientology, you know, approaches SPs. There's some similarities there. Yeah. I, now I want to talk to some of the USAPL boys and see, uh, see if they've gotten indoctrined yet. <laughs> Saying, we know some folks, and they, they went from really, really loving APF meets to you know, USAPL, IPS, the only way to go. Yeah. And let's give credit where credit due. The IPF has probably the best competition. They have the most number of lifters. They do have that. Um, the US, USAPL, I mean, I will say that in the last four or five years, they've taken some of that extra cash they've gotten from sponsorships mm-hmm. and from more members, and they've put that into production value. I mean, you looked at their setup at the Arnold Classic, it was top-notch. And, and you look at, you know, Raw Nats, five platforms. Every one of them had an LCD screen. Like, that was incredible. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. They did a, they did a great job with that. But yep. I would make the argument that uh, 
some of those electric bill was like some of those uh, bylaws. Uh, I don't agree with. Yeah. And I think they could be challenged in court if somebody wanted to challenge them. I, I'm I don't know that anybody ever will because I don't know if anybody cares enough. Again, again it. it would take somebody that was just looking to prove a point. Yeah. It, it, and and they'd have to be able to show damages. That's the other thing is, yeah. you know, you could, you know, if you're a celebrity, you could, you could show somebody's lying about you and hurting your image. And you could show that maybe that person is even, you know, damaging your reputation enough yeah. that it's hurting you financially. If somebody lies about Bain or I, you know, sure, we could sue them. It would cost us a lot of money. Would we be able to show any damages I'll other than attorneys? I'll just and screw up a spot or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> so next week, Bain, we're going to continue on our historical tour of the 80s. Yes. And we're going to yes. go through the Inzer Franz IP, or the Inzer Franz lawsuit, which then ties into this lawsuit. This is so interesting. I do need to do a little bit of additional research this week. I need to call up the man himself. Yeah. Um, and maybe get a couple clarifications if he's available. I may need to call up Amy Jackson, who was around back then and yep. might have some some feedback because there's a couple pieces that just don't add up. Because let's go through the timeline. Mm-hmm. 2001, apparently, Enzer and Ernie had some kind of detente in order to take over this IPF mm-hmm. judgment that Ernie held. Mm-hmm. Um, the lawsuits did not end in 2001. No. The lawsuit, and uh, there's a patent involved, which also ended around that time. And but the lawsuits continued into oh, yeah. 2002 and 2003. Yeah, so it, it's pretty interesting. I feel like um, we're doing like legal clerk work. Like we just call it like Stonebane and Penrose LLC, <laughs> LPC or something. I uh, I the legalese starts to get a little. It starts to cross my eyes a little bit. It's tough. And again, maybe there's a point where I can get a, a legal expert on here. To, I to look I'm going to text my this. guy. I'll see if he'll uh, maybe get on with us before the show and see if he can uh, break some of this stuff down for us. Well, because especially the lawsuits relate. I don't know that anything exists. Other than what I referenced in the IPF mm-hmm. newsletter about this uh, agreement between the IPF, Ernie Franz, and John Enzer, mm-hmm. I don't think that ever went to court. I think that was just a, a, you know, a, a legal agreement, but I don't, think it right. was, I don't think it was something that happened in court. Interesting. Because so, I could not find anything. That's the only place I could even find I it referenced. Some, I wonder if somehow it's sealed. Could be. I mean, if it's... Let's try to find out. Yeah, we could try to find out. So that's what we'll go to next week. We'll continue our historical tour and hopefully bring you all some entertainment during our uh, corona quarantine. And please uh, leave us some feedback. Leave us some ratings on the iTunes and wherever else that goes. And, uh, you know, definitely leave us uh, us some reviews. We like those. We like to hear the stuff. If we get some good reviews, maybe we'll read them on the air. Yep. With that, this is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and Anchor.